You're listening to Simple Roots Radio, episode number 214, and today is all about genetics and hormones, what you actually need to know about how your hormones work. It's all inside today's show. Welcome to Simple Roots Radio with Alexa Sherm. Alexa believes that simplicity in life is the key to achieving true and lasting health. And now your host, Alexa Sherm. Welcome back to the podcast. My name's Alexa, and this is the place to get healthy, live happy, and find more joy. Today on the show, I have Dr. Manzer Muhammad, who has an extremely impressive background in the field of genetics. I won't list all of his credentials because the list is long, but I want you to know that Dr. Manzer is now the president and CSO of the DNA Company, which is a leading and innovative provider of comprehensive functional genomics testing and consulting, and the first in the industry to bring you individually customized supplements based on your genetics. His work is truly fascinating, and when we get into the world of genetics, it is incredibly personal, but even more, the work that the DNA company has done through Dr. Manzer has been taking the genetic code, which to date has looked more like a vocabulary, and has put together the language of how it all works together. And that's really why I'm so excited to have Dr. Manzer on, because what I think it's going to do is it's going to verge the gap between what we thought we knew about genetics and how we can actually start to learn about your individual body and your hormonal flow. And I think it's so fascinating in regards to hormones because so many people have so many hormonal issues and yet we have so many struggles when it comes to blood work and getting accurate testing and even the right doses of different medications and supplements and lifestyles to fit your unique body. But breaking the code of genetics could actually be the answer. So today we're going to talk about women's hormones, men's hormones, menopause, how you know if you actually have a hormonal imbalance, and what your genetics can tell you about helping your body come back into balance. Needless to say, I'm super pumped to have Dr. Banzer on. It is an absolute honor and privilege that he would come and share this information with you. He believes in the work of genetics so highly that he thinks it could help you as well. If you want to learn more about Dr. Manzer and the work of The DNA Company, head to thednacompany.com. It is truly fascinating and worth every penny. I have submitted my DNA. I have yet to get it back. Thanks to the whole COVID exposure, it's taking a little bit longer, but I will make sure and share all of my results when I get it back so you can see the full report. Now, we're going to talk about how this is different from other genetic companies like 23andMe and Ancestry.com and just kind of learn where this fits in the piece of the puzzle. So I'll keep you posted on all of that as I get my results back, as I've done multiple other DNA reports as well. But also, he's going to talk about the difference inside today's podcast. So with all of that being said, let's welcome Dr. Manzer to the show. Welcome to the show, Dr. Manzer. I am so excited to have you on and to dig into a subject that we've been hearing lots about, but I really just want to make it personal today. And I'm excited that you can be here to do that for us. It's, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Alexa. Yeah. So you're a DNA expert um, and this world of genomics is exploding and really it's becoming relatively mainstream. But outside of like our ancestry data, which we hear about on TV, you know, like finding lost family members and all this stuff that we're doing with the ancestry of who we are, what do you think we should be excited for in this space? Because you're doing so much more than that. 
You know, not to be glib, one of the things, and for answering your question, I like to tell folks, you know, I'm more concerned, not, not, I'm less concerned about where we've been and more concerned about where we're going. And I think in that sort of slightly glib answer, that's where I'm focusing my efforts. So less about ancestry, you know, and that's important. That's certainly important, but more about really getting into what is this thing? This Your genomic makeup is your operating manual. And housed in that operating manual, it's a plethora, it's a treasure trove of information about how your body works in all of the minutiae, all of the minute facets about cellular function, how your body responds to the environment. So if we can tap into that, which is exactly what we're seeing right now, this shift, mm-hmm. this movement into, I think, it's been 20 years since we've been since we've sequenced a human genome. Can you believe that? That's so crazy. In, in these 20, 20 years? Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, you know, sort of 2000, 2001 yeah. was yeah. when we, uh, famously President Clinton made the announcement that this was yet another giant step for mankind, i.e. with the quote-unquote sequencing of the human genome. To be clear to the audience, we're still discovering things. There's still sequences that, you know, we're diving deeper. But for all intents and purposes, it's been 20 years since we've actually gotten a handle on the operating manual of the human being. And now what we're seeing, Alexa, to, to, to cut it short, is we're finally able to interact with that operating manual and bring from it some incredible instructive uh, uh, protocols, instructions to the individual. And that's what we're seeing right now. Yeah. I mean, we're just taking big box generalizations and we're breaking it down to the person, Absolutely, which is what we've needed all along. So can we just rewind for a second? And I just want you to clarify what is functional genomics and what can a person specifically learn from it? It's a beautiful question. So functional genomics, it's, it's, it's a descriptive term. It's how are we using the sum total of our genetics? So herein, we need one more definition. Genetics, the study of genes. Genes are the discrete instructions within our operating manual. So if we think of the operating manual as a 23 volume, which is what per analogy it is, it's a 23 volume set. And within those volumes are paragraphs on pages, the pages of the volumes, that's your DNA, the paragraphs on the pages, that's, those are your genes. And each mm-hmm. paragraph is a discrete instruction. Genetics is the study of those discrete instructions, those discrete genes. What do they do? What are they telling the cell to do? That's an instruction. Functional genomics, on the other hand, is that, but it is the study of those discrete genes as they exist and as they do the job in the big holistic setting. Because just to clarify and then to complete this answer, nothing in the human body works based on just single genes. Rather, all of the things that our body has to do, breaking down, metabolizing the foods that we eat, detoxifying the chemicals and the toxins that we're exposed to on a daily daily basis, all of those jobs that the human body has to do at the cellular level, they aren't just single genes, they're multiple genes working together. Functional genomics, therefore, in conclusion, is the study of these cascades, these pathways that happen in the cell through the lenses of genetics. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think I once heard you say that 
the traditional study of genetics has been looking at the vocabulary where you want to study it as a language. And I thought that that was really fascinating because it does show how our body's working together. It's not these separate components that we often are taught about health, but it's really the harmony in which everything comes together. Dig into that a little bit more. Beautifully said. So, you know, when I, I tried for three years, because there's been so much of a superficiality in the media and in the public domain about what genetics is. And so I wanted to find something that really resonates and get people to understand. You know, many times I get patients coming to me and says, well, Dr. Mansur, there's this other test that tested for 400 genes or 500 genes or whatever the case might be. And I have to tell them that when you begin to really become an expert in the language of DNA, and that is what DNA is, it has Mm -hmm. all of the facets and attributes of a language. And a language isn't just about the vocabulary. Here, vocabulary is the analogy of the genes. Yes, learning more vocabulary, yes, studying more genes is important, but to be honest with you, Alexa, even more important than that is to understand how that vocabulary, how do those genes come together in operational sentences, which means there's grammar, there are nuances, yeah. it or not, to the way our DNA works. And unless we understand the complexity and the awesomeness of DNA as a language, we really, well, we're, we're going to be guilty of making things far too superficial and we're missing the real jewel, the real benefit of studying genetics. Right, right. So do you believe that what you're doing right now is the future of treating diseases? Certainly when combined, obviously, with experts as we serve, we, we, we are tapping into the operating manual. And yes, that's going to be the future of medicine, but it's going to be the future of not just medicine, but health and well-being and this journey as human beings, when obviously combined with equally minded experts in all of the medical fields, nutrition, lifestyle choices, uh, and then of course, core allopathic medicine as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's really fascinating. And you've done a lot of study on hormones, which I want to get into in a second. But before we go there, I often hear people say, it's just my genetics. Mm -hmm. You know, like I I can't change or this is never going to get better because it's just who I am. Yes. What is your answer to that? Is that true or is that false? What, What is your take on that? It is true to a degree and, and not, not to be deflating, but it is not at all fatalistic. So mm-hmm. your genetic makeup in some aspects of it, and, and, and let's take, ultimately, what are we looking at? We're looking at the outcome of cellular behavior, right? So we're looking at the person and we're looking at ultimately how are our cells working together as cells, connecting as tissues, as organs, and then ultimately the whole being of the person. Mm-hmm. Now, those cells are functioning, certainly based on their genetic code, but also they're functioning in the context that that genetic code exists, not in a vacuum, but it exists together with lifestyle choices, nutrition choices, and environmental exposures. So Alexa, for yourself and for the audience, I like to have the audience picture a circle. That circle is your genetic makeup. Okay, it's your sum total genetic makeup. It's the sum total of your operating manual. And then what I like to do is draw a triangle that just encompasses that circle. So an equilateral triangle, and here we're testing the mathematics of our audience. So think of an equal-sided triangle that just perfectly encompasses that circle. In other words, the circle is just within 
that triangle. And the apices, the points of that triangle, are labeled environment, nutrition, and lifestyle. So, yes, the genetic makeup of a person is important, but more important than that is what is the context within that genetic makeup is housed. It's being expressed based on nutrition choices, lifestyle choices, and environmental choices, exposures. So now to conclude the answer, your genetic makeup, and certainly for some genes more than others, for some instructions more than others, the core genetic instruction can be quite deterministic, can be quite, you know, A equals this. Mm -hmm. However, for the vast majority of things, what really matters is how do you take that core instruction, don't be fatalistic about it, it is not the final deterministic outcome in, the most, in most of the cases, but what matters is that you understand that genetic instruction, but you understand what is the right nutritional choices, environmental choices, and lifestyle choices to match with that instruction for optimal health. Yeah. Yeah. And you're specifically doing a lot of work with this, with hormones, both male and female, correct? Yes, yes absolutely. So what are you learning? Let's, let's talk about men and then let's get into women uh, <laughs> a little bit more in depth. Um, but what are you learning about the male hormone spectrum when you study this work and what's different about that compared to what we've known before? Well, so I, one thing to actually make this a little easier, remarkably, Alexa, the Genetic control mechanism for, and here for the audience, when we speak of hormones, obviously there are all sorts of different types of hormones. Here we're speaking of the sex hormones. We're speaking mm -hmm. specifically of what we call the sex steroidal hormones, which include progesterones, androgens, think testosterone, and estrogens. And what is remarkable, Alexa, is the genetic control mechanism for how, as human beings, males or females, how as human beings we make and we control the circadian rhythm and the metabolism of all three classes of sex hormones, progesterones, androgens, and estrogens, are actually remarkably similar between men and women. So actually the first thing we've learned is <laughs> that, that the genetic control mechanism of making these hormones, metabolizing these hormones, responding to these hormones are actually remarkably similar between men and women. That's actually the first thing that we've learned. Yeah. Now, when we then, let's just say, okay, so we, we, we parse down and we go to males. When you, the first, I think what's really important for the audience to understand is just how important these sex hormones are. You know, for the average person, uh, when we think of sex hormones, obviously, and correctly, we think about these hormones shaping who we are, males, females, shaping to some extent body type and certain somewhat superficial aspects of our body. When we hit puberty, the changes that happen both in boys and girls, and then as we grow older, the changes that happen in our bodies, we can often, for the average person, we think of this in terms of sex hormones. And this is true. However, how do sex hormones actually do their jobs. This is something the vast majority of the population, including many clinicians, miss. Right. Sex hormones, particularly your androgens, think testosterone, but there are other androgens, mind you, and estrogens. The androgens and estrogens, testosterone and estrogen, cause changes in your cells. They, they change cellular function by two simple processes. First, 
they bind to receptors in the cell. So in other words, they bind to these receptors. They're then taken into the nuclei. The nuclei, that's where, these are the library vaults. This is where we house our genes, our genetic operating manual. And so sex hormones cause cellular changes at the core. They change the way your DNA is expressed. Androgens, testosterone, causes DNA or cause DNA expression that androgenizes the cell, brings about certain changes in cell behavior consistent with androgenization. In other words, a bit more muscularizing of the cell's behavior. Estrogens bring about changes, causes different genes to be turned on and turned off that brings about estrogenization of the cellular behavior. So the first really important point here that we've got to get clear is these hormones aren't just floating around the body and you know people have a sort of amorphous idea as to what they're doing. These hormones actually change DNA expression, turning on and turning off genes in different rhythms, in different patterns. Okay, now, once we understand that, then you can appreciate that these DNA changes that hormones make are not just you know, related to breast development or where does fat get deposited on the body. They radically impact things including the metabolic rate and efficiency of the cell. They impact neurochemical signatures, so they impact mood and behavior. They impact other hormonal systems. They impact how our bodies respond to fats in our diet, respond to carbs and sugars in our diet. They impact the repair mechanism of the body. They impact the vascular system of the body. So the second point that I want to make when you ask what have we learned is to make sure that the populace understands these sex hormones are way beyond the secondary sexual features of the male and female body. Okay. Mm -hmm. The third thing that we've learned linked to the fact that we just said the mechanism, the instructions in, in that the, the, the human body uses to make male, the male cascade of hormones and the female cascade of hormones are actually, we said the first point, remarkably similar. The third point is this, that it's a cascade. And this is so, re this is so important, Alexa. You know, when you think, when you speak to the average male or female, you know, sometimes a lot of guys think we have a monopoly over testosterone and girls think they have a monopoly over estrogens. Yeah. Nothing can be further from the truth. In other words, both males and females produce progesterones, androgens and estrogens in both sexes. And by the way, all three hormones are radically related to each other. In other words, androgens, testosterone, is made from progesterone, specifically pregnenolone. And estrogen, estradiol, is made from testosterone. So girl, ladies out there, especially if you're menstruating and you're not on any birth control pill or hormone replacement, Every molecule of estrogen in a menstruating young woman, accounting for any external estrogens, any molecule of estrogen in a menstruating female was first a molecule of testosterone, mm. for example. And in men, we too make estradiol, and it comes from our testosterone. So these are the three points to, to sort of kick off this topic yeah. that we've learned. Number one, the the genetic instruction in males and females when it comes to sex hormones is 
or are remarkably similar. Number two, mm-hmm. sex hormones are responsible for way more than just the external sexual characteristics of males and females. Number three, the three categories of sex hormones, progesterones, androgens, and estrogens, are intimately linked to each other. Estrogens are made from androgens. Androgens are made from progesterones. It's a cascade. From there, I think, Alexa, we can kick off any number of topics. Right. I mean, where do we even go from here? It's all of these things. So like when, when you bring that to light and the world of how we're treating hormonal imbalance, yes, we're kind of going about it in the wrong direction. Well, my, it's, it's been a major, this is why I'm so passionate about this. This is why we've made this a focal point. And, and certainly at our company, one of the things we've done for Q1 2020 i.e. the quarter that we're in right now, and we're smacking it, is we've made female hormone health the priority of our company. Because, you know, Alexa, in so many ways, the, the about half of the human population, our ladies, our females, have been done a dramatic disservice when it comes to most things, medicine. Do you know that 80% of medications that are recalled from the market, these are medications, these are drugs that were approved for use, of medications that are recalled from the market are medications aimed at women. Mm, Because we're studying men, right? The reason that I bring that up is this demonstrates an aberrant, a, a, a dismal concept within the way we treat medical research and clinical trials that we treat the female body as just a male body without a penis. Forgive me mm-hmm. for the, you know, for the audience members, but to just yeah. make that stark point and nothing could be further from the truth. And this is, this is coming from, you know, really a deep understanding of the human body. So understanding how hormones work, especially in the female population where we have a plethora, we, there's, a, there's an alarming statistic, and I say alarming, let me be clear, that hormone replacement, the use of the birth control pill, is not only appropriate, it's a godsend, it's, a, it's, 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 it's absolutely important and relevant for many, many women. It's, it's life-changing in the most positive ways for many women, to say nothing of the fact that a woman should have control over her body in terms of deciding what she wants to do from a hormonal perspective. Now, that being said, Alexa, 85% of young women in North America by the age of 25 have either been on the pill or is on the pill. 85%. Now, think about this for a moment. We are putting these hormones, particularly in this case, estrogens, which we said estrogens radically change DNA expression. That is how they work. That is how they do what they do in the human body. And let's just remind the audience that in a natural setting, in a naturally menstruating young woman, estrogens are not present at the same level every day of the monthly cycle. In fact, estrogens are only elevated for a few days, approximately seven-ish days, seven to eight days, give or take, in the female monthly cycle. For the rest of the days, 20, the rest of the 21, 20 odd days of the cycle, estrogens are not elevated. Mm-hmm. So when you add these things together, when you add that estrogens, hormones, these sex hormones are radically DNA 
They affect DNA expression. They affect how our DNA works, number one. Number two, that a huge swath of our female population are on hormone replacements of some kind, intentionally or unintentionally, because by the way, we have environmental estrogens that we have to be concerned about now. Number two, number three, that we are not, and here comes the point, which obviously we'll talk about. When we take all of the things we've said, when we take how important these hormones are, and we actually do not appreciate the genetic differences between these women that we're putting on the pill and on hormone replacement, mm-hmm. again, making sure that everyone understands there's a time, there's a place, there's an appropriateness of this. But for many, many women, they are on hormone replacements of some kind without appreciating how their body might react individually, uniquely to these hormones, this is where I've become so passionate for both men and women, and by the way, for men as well, to, to at least educate our medical professionals. And by the way, Alexa, we only we work with clinicians. We work with the clinicians to teach them and to educate them about being aware of the individual genetic differences in the population, such that when they make hormonal recommendations, given how important and how radically you know, cell affecting these hormones can be that they can at least appreciate the individuality of the person that they're prescribing these things for. Right. Right. And I mean, like you said, once you understand that hormones affect our cells on a DNA level, on a genetic level, absolutely, then we can start to see, Hey, when, when we go to reproduce, yes. <laughs> that DNA is being passed down to another generation yeah. which we can only imagine what's going to happen in a few generations from now that who knows, right? So what what the genetic that's, change. That's an important point. So what you're referring to, of course, is as much as we have this operating manual, the genes, the DNA, there's a phenomena, i.e. of epigenetics, that when we affect the way the genes are expressed, which of course is exactly what hormones are. Hormones are including sex hormones, including insulin, for example, another of the hormones, they are epigenetic factors. When these hormones are present, present or absent, or present at different degrees, meaning at different different levels, in, in different circadian rhythms, they are epigenetically affecting, they are affecting the way our DNA is expressed. Now, when you do that, when you affect the way the DNA is expressed, you know, there are studies that are suggesting that when you change DNA expression in one generation, we can start changing the way that that DNA will be expressed in the generations to come. So what you've hinted at, of course, is something we we, we certainly don't have a full knowledge of that, but we're certainly beginning to appreciate. We can't just willy-nilly affect DNA expression in one generation, which of course it's important enough to understand that in the person, but it's even more so we're beginning to get the hints. We're beginning to get the concern that, wait a minute, what are we doing for the gener- through the sperm, through the egg, and therefore through the generations to come? What are we doing? What are we affecting? How are we affecting the generations to come? Right, right. It's alarming, but it's a double-edged sword at the same time, because like you said, birth control has served a purpose and it's relieved a lot of women of a number of symptoms that haven't been treated. Indeed. And so how do we, how do we change the cycle? How yes. do we get ourselves yes. out of the cycle and actually 
you know, I think so, so much we're, I don't like to say the band-aid approach, but in some way we are just kind of putting band-aids on things, um, helping symptoms without ever really getting to the root of this. So how do we get beyond this? And, and again, what a brilliant question, a brilliant framing for the question. So let's just be clear for our audience. I will underline there is the birth, birth control and hormone replacement in all of its forms have been one of the most amazing advancements in our medical repertoire. No two ways about it. Okay. Mm-hmm. However, we, every, most individuals, if not everyone, appreciates that when we use hormone replacement, we often cannot expect the same outcome. You take 100 women of the same age, of the same ethnicity, of the same eating habits, lifestyle habits, and they go on the pill purely from a birth control perspective, for example. And they are, these are 100 college women. They're living in the same place, eating the same foods, exercising mm-hmm. the same way. Let's control for all factors, including ethnicity. And we know that these 100 women, having been on the pill for the important and appropriate use of birth control, that their experience with the pill, as important as it may be, can be radically different within these 100 women. So, so to be clear, we know that the body responds differently. Now, to your question, the goal here would be, and the goal should be, can we appreciate the individual propensities, the individual response, concerns, non-concerns, when we change the hormonal profile of this young woman, which is what we're doing when we take mm-hmm. the pill or when we take hormone replacement? Can we appreciate, first question, Are there genetic predicators for individuality, one woman to the next, in terms of their response to hormones? Question number one. Number two, can we use those genetic predicators, those individual genetic profiles, to better inform or alert concerns about hormone replacement or non-hormone replacement? In other words, to confirm that, you know what, you need hormone replacement in some way, shape, form, or fashion. This is where... We need to be, and by the way, Alexa, this is what we're doing. So quickly, picking up on that, because I know that's what you want me to get to. For example, when a young woman is exposed to estrogens, whether they are the estrogens she makes, so let's say she's a menstruating young woman. Of course, this equally applies in menopausal women as young women as well. Let's just start with a a menstruating young woman. When she makes her estrogens, her estradiol, particularly when she's in her 20s and 30s, for example, she's not on the pill, so the most, most of the estrogens in her body are coming from her testosterone. In other words, she's making it. And by the way, we said you make estradiol from testosterone. Point number one, the efficiency and the rate with which an individual young woman makes estrogen is radically genetically determinable. A gene, the aromatase gene, CYP19A1 gene, is the gene that controls the rate and the efficiency with which you convert, you biotransform testosterone into estradiol. And that gene, by the way, Alexa, comes in different versions, such that some women are much more innately, quote-unquote, efficient their, the rate at which they convert their testosterone to estradiol is significantly higher than other women. Unsurprisingly, Alexa, the women that have the version of their CYP19A1 aromatase gene that is more efficient, the rate at which they're converting their testosterone to estrogen, 
unsurprisingly, these women exhibit fairly obvious signs and features of estrogenization more than the other women who are not as efficiently converting their testosterone into estrogens. Step number one. By the way, that's something we can look at and we can predict that quite nicely. But here's the point that I'm getting to that really, I think, captures the whole importance of what we're talking about. When a woman makes her estradiol, as we've just said, every monthly cycle, that estradiol having been made, assuming she does not get pregnant, every molecule of estradiol she makes in one cycle before she has her monthly her period, her flow, her menstruation, and starts her second cycle, every single one of those molecules of estradiol has to be metabolized, broken down, and flushed out of the body. And then we hit repeat. Now, how do we break down estradiol in the female body, and might I say in the male body as well, by the way? Mm-hmm. Every young woman, when she makes estradiol, she will biotransform, she will metabolize her estradiol into three different metabolites. They're known as 2-hydroxyestrogen, 4-hydroxyestrogen, and 16-alpha-hydroxyestrogen. To be clear, every young woman, if she's menstruating and she's not, you know, she's menstruating normally, she's not on the pill, she's going to make these three different metabolites. Mm-hmm. Every young woman. Mm-hmm. However, the rate at which she converts her estradiol into each of these three different metabolites is going to be different, one young woman to the next. And we've learned that the two hydroxyestradiol byproducts, intermediate, metabolite, is much safer to the human body, to the female body, and to the male body for that matter, than the 4-hydroxy metabolite. You see, the 4-hydroxy metabolite, Alexa, is extremely pro-inflammatory. They do, it does naughty things to the cells when produced. Now, every woman produces it, but not every woman produces more 4-hydroxy when compared to 2-hydroxy, for example. Mm-hmm. And the rate at which a young woman produces her two, her four, and her 16 hydroxyestrogens is remarkably genetically deterministic. Now, let's add this up together and make a conclusion. We've just said that every woman makes these different metabolites. Check mark. Number two, that these three different metabolites do not impact the human body the same way. 2-hydroxyestrogen is considered the desirable metabolite. 4-hydroxyestrogen, a much less desirable metabolite. Number three, each of these metabolites are individually produced and controlled by different genetic pathways. Number four, we can predict the efficiency of those pathways by looking at the genes involved in those pathways. Now let's conclude. So if you know everything that I've just said, and you appreciate the importance as well as the consequences of the system, if you're going to give the same estrogen birth control pill or estrogen replacement to 100 women, but you've not asked 
In those 100 women, are they innately more predisposed to making more 2-hydroxy byproducts versus 4-hydroxy byproducts? And that the 4-hydroxy byproduct can have significantly deleterious effects on the human body, on the female body. What have we done? Mm -hmm. Right? And just that, just that one key. Just that one key, because it's queryable, because it's something that we can look at and we can make some profoundly different, more informed, healthier choices. So again, we here, we, we, we of course, we we have no we have no right to talk about you know what a woman uses for birth control or hormone replacement. First and foremost, we have no right to say that. But secondly, what we're trying to say is by this information. Now women and their healthcare providers can start making more informed and healthier choices because then you can know what your alternatives are. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when we start being more individualized to how we treat, what does a protocol look like? You know, I think oftentimes we just get prescribed a pill or what, and as you've done this work and you've helped many, many women in this field, what does it look like? I mean, it can't just be the yeah. pill. Like you said, it, it's like the whole scope of health. Like what are some aspects of that? Absolutely. That so is easy that to overlook. Do, yeah. So we're, we're obviously only working here with clinicians and ultimately the clinician with their patient makes the final decision. That's such an important point to make. But here's how we work with a clinician. First and foremost, we create the profile. In other words, we query the profile to help the clinicians understand, are you dealing with a young woman that is estrogen dominant? Are you dealing with a young woman that is androgen dominant? Meaning, are they innately more likely to be converting their progesterones into their androgens, their androgens into their estrogens, because it's a cascade and each step in the cascade is queryable so that we can understand the efficiencies. So we build, we paint a picture of the innate genetic cascade in that young woman. We then fill in, how is her body dealing with the estrogens having been made? Is she at risk for estrogen toxicity is what the term will be. Vis-a-vis, is she at risk for making too much 4-hydroxyestrogen? And by the way, when she makes it, there are yet other pathways that will determine the efficiency with which she neutralizes that naughty. Because remember, every woman makes the 4-hydroxyestrogen. Mm-hmm. It's, it depends on how much she is innately capable of making. And then, by the way, how efficient is she at then neutralizing this, frankly, toxic inflammatory estrogen byproduct? So we create, we have a protocol where we paint, where we clarify all of those points. In other words, we show what that individual cascade is, the efficiencies, which pathways are more predisposed. Remember, these are predispositions. An important point here for the audience and and, and for yourself, Alexa, and to remind myself, when we talk about these genes and we talk about determining the innate efficiency or predisposition that a young woman has in converting her progesterones to androgens, androgens to estrogens, estrogens into byproducts, every single one of these genes that are, take, that are doing the job in the different parts of the pathway, every single one of these genes are 
affectable, are their, their expression can be changed by nutritional habits, lifestyle habits, mm -hmm. and environmental exposures. So even after we determine what version of a gene a person has, a young woman has, telling us the efficiency, the predisposition with which she's making the naughty 4-hydroxy or the better 2-hydroxy or the efficiency with which she's more estrogen-dominant, androgen-dominant, at each point, we also know what are the foods that can turn down or turn up that gene? What are the lifestyle things that are better suited to modulate that gene? What are the environmental concerns we should be more or less concerned about? So we paint an entire nuanced picture. And with this, now the clinician, when, when he or she sits with their patient, in this case, for example, a young woman, they can say, look, you know what? Your genetic predisposition for producing, metabolizing, and clearing estrogens is extremely healthy, extremely efficient. You are not showing, we, you know, none of your other blood markers. Are there any concerns? You're a non-smoker. Your health attributes, your lifestyle attributes are healthy. You would like to go on a birth control regimen for a few months for a period of time. We feel that you are far safer in taking this option. And so, you can feel comfortable. We'll obviously monitor health dynamics, but you can feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. Now compare and contrast that to the young woman who might have some of the predispositions that are a bit more concerning vis-a-vis -vis her estrogenicity, her estrotoxicity, the rate and the efficiency with which she can clear those estro-4-hydroxy toxins and so on and so forth. If she falls into that bucket, her clinician can now sit with her and say, okay, Mrs. Jane, you have a healthy lifestyle. Uh, we don't see any blood concerns, blood biomarkers, and so on and so forth. However, we do find that your genetic predisposition in which you respond to estrogens and estrogen byproducts, which, by the way, might have been explaining some of your monthly cycle issues, PMS and concerns, by the way, okay, what we do find here is we want to be a little bit more careful prescribing an estrogen pill. We may choose a lower dose estrogen pill. We may choose a combination pill for you. And if, by the way, you are choosing this purely for a birth control and not, for example, in an effort to balance irregularities of your cycle, then might we suggest that even though you can have some options with hormone replacement pills, might we suggest some other options of birth control? This is the type of intelligent, individual and nuanced conversation. And when young women are spoken to, when they meet with their clinicians in this manner, and it's not a one-size-fits-all, the whole dynamic of healthcare, the whole dynamic of their individual ownership of their health changes, Alexa. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So you're really taking this DNA and showing the story. That's that the they need in order to get treated. And it, and like you said, you're doing it for men, women and men as well. Absolutely. Now, when we get into men, yes. I don't feel like hormones are talked about. I mean, we hear all the time in women that there's hormonal balance and all of this, but in men, I feel like maybe it's a little bit more of a taboo subject. A bit more of a taboo subject. And because men, generally speaking, we don't have a monthly reminder of the mm. hormonal circadians in our body. We don't see an, you know, an obvious monthly reminder. Because of the lack of that monthly reminder, it becomes a topic that is just forgotten. 
And then yeah. the only time we speak of hormone replacement in men, other than extreme examples, is when we have the age arcing circadian rhythm, where in men we get the menopause, so to speak, in one's later 40s or 50s, as the case might be, then it becomes something we speak about. However, however, as we've just said, the hormonal genetic and the cascades are remarkably similar between men right. and women. Men go through the same progesterone to testosterone to estrogens cascade, but rather than doing so within 28 days, which is the average circadian rhythm of the female, men do so within 24 hours, give or take. In other words, we do the same cascade through the same genetic pathways, but not in 28 days, but in 24 hours, number one. Number two, that men tend to be more concerned or it really becomes an issue when they start realizing certain physical attributes, performance attributes are in the decline. And then, of course, they start thinking, well, can I bring back a more youthful uh, uh, you know, version of myself? Now, even within men, we must be cognizant of the individuality. Because, for example, and by the way, this applies to women as well, I've been saying that when you take testosterone, testosterone converts into estrogen. Well, in men and women alike, testosterone, having been made, not only is responsible for making your estrogens, testosterone is further also converted into something called dihydrotestosterone. And DHT, dihydrotestosterone, is a more virulent testosterone. We say that one molecule of DHT has the potency. It can bind to the cells, to those androgen receptors, and cause androgenization of the cell six times more potent than a molecule of testosterone. So in both the male and female body, when it comes to the androgen balance, it's important that we understand the balance between testosterone and its more virulent brother, DHT, dihydrotestosterone. Now, that conversion between testosterone and DHT, again, it's remarkably controlled genetically. Some men accomplish that conversion much more, shall we say, at a higher rate than other men. Now, when you appreciate that DHT is a far more virulent version of testosterone that all men make, but not all men make it at the same rate, and by the way, it's quite genetically determinable. And when you understand and, and realize that DHT plays a role longitudinally in the health of the prostate, in the risk of prostate, benign prostate hyperplasia, and other even more superficial phenomena, hair loss, when you appreciate that the balance between testosterone, DHT, and estrogen in men and women dramatically affects vascular health. And now you start to see, Alexa, that each of these points, they're beautiful little cascade points. And at each point in the cascade, there's a stoplight, a red light, a green light, an amber light that is controlling the next step. And those stoplights are your genes. Mm. Mm -hmm. And can you imagine a hundred men comes, come to a clinic complaining of, let's just say, a more basal drop in libido, and they don't know anything about their genetics. And here they are sitting in their early 50s. They're not yet concerned about any type of BPHs yet. All they were concerned about was their declining libido or the declining performance in the gym. And we proceed to give these hundred men the same level of testosterone replacement, just 
keeping it simple right. across the board. And we have no clue whether and how their body having been given the testosterone, are they going to be making too much DHT versus the other guy? Are they going to be making too much estrogen versus the other guy? And we treat them all the same. And then we get men coming back to the clinic. And this is not, these are not, you know, sort of dramatized stories. I can't tell you how many men have gone in a androgen replacement for performance, for libido, for wanting to reclaim their youthful body. And a month into it, come back yelling and screaming because they've developed gynomastia. Mm -hmm. They've actually developed hugely estrogenized features. Yeah. Because their clinicians had not been aware of the propensity, the innate propensity that that man had to convert the given androgen into estrogens. We didn't take that into consideration. Oh, God forbid, the other side, we gave the androgens and he just made more and more DHT. And within a month, two months, three months, he starts having micturition, getting up in the middle of the night. He's noticing urinary incontinence and other features of benign prostate hyperplasia. So as much as there are considerations in the female population, and while they may be a bit more on the surface because of monthly cycles, in men, this is absolutely a topic of discussion. And again, the goal here, Alexa, uh, I, you know, thank you for taking this much time with me. The goal is this, to summarize. Sex steroidal hormones are radically important to health, longevity, vitality. No two ways about it. Mm -hmm. optimizing these sex hormones and by optimizing I mean it in all of the definition of the term making sure that whatever is the individual optimization is radically important to vitality, longevity and health but therein lies the key it is the individual optimization it is not like anything else it is not a one size fits all and how are we going to learn about what the individual needs are when it comes to this ultra important goal of optimizing sex hormones, we have to begin to appreciate the underlying genetic individuality. And once we can do so, it's not solving everything, but we at least have an important tool in appreciating the individuality of the person, therefore creating better nuances, better insights into the options, into the combinations, into the dosing of these hormone replacements in both men and women. Yeah, it's really remarkable. And like you said, it may not be everything, but it is a, a a start that's way ahead of the pack of where you would have been otherwise, just to see that um, and to get to know your body in a deeper way. So you're doing all of this work over at the dnacompany.com. Can you just tell us more about what someone would need to come to you? If anything, I know some people already have their DNA test. Yes. Can they just simply upload that to you? Or are you wanting to run a new test? It's a very important point. I would like to say at some point in time, we can upload results from anywhere else. However, two things, not all DNA results, meaning whatever data that you've gotten from a certain test contains all of the relevant 
pieces of data mm-hmm. that you need specifically to address this topic. And so what we what we've done when we build tests, Alexa, we don't build tests based on just a smorgasbord of genes, you know, more is better, which is we said at the beginning of this talk. When we build tests, we build tests purposefully. We first ask what is the system we want to study? Forget genetics. Like, what is the system? How does the body make pregnenolone, progesterones converted into androgens, androstene dion, androstene diol, DHEA, testosterone, DHT, makes your estradiol, your estrone. And so we map out the pathways and then and only then do we fill in the genes. So the first point, the first answer to your question is very few genetic tests out there have actually, as much as there are many, many different genes, they've not chosen the most appropriate combination of genes for the various pathways that you want to study. So if someone has the right genes that we need to study the pathway, by all means, we can just interpret their existing results. However, if they do not have all of the genes necessary to paint the full picture of the pathway, then of course, that's what we've designed. That's number one. Number two, our tests are saliva-based. So these kits are FDA-approved kits. They are the standard kits in the industry. Um, So they're very, very easy to be used. Number three, we work through healthcare providers. So if you're a consumer and you come to us, we have our internal healthcare clinicians that will be assigned to you. Or of course, if you're working with a clinician, a nutritionist, any of the spectrum of healthcare providers, those are the individuals because we want to make sure, uh, uh, Alexa, that this information isn't being treated trivially. We want to make sure, and we're not becoming, we're not the gatekeepers of the information mm-hmm. to the consumer. No, you can get the test, but we just want to make sure that your the interpretation and how you're using this information is in the right hands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So good. So tell us where we can learn more about you and what you're doing and how to get started in this process. Well, you can certainly, you can do better than to, or I can say you can do worse than to visit www.thednacompany.com. And that's just spelled out, thednacompany.com. Believe it or not, that was available. And so it tells you what we do. Yeah. Everything that you need to know in terms of contacting us, speaking to us, never hesitate. If you, if you don't know if this is a test that's beneficial, if you want to get some clarification, call us and we'll spend. That's what we're here for. Just complimentarily call us. We'll spend some time talking to you. We'll tell you. You know, many times I'll tell someone, you know what, based on your health goals, based on your health considerations, the type of insights that our tests will provide are not going to be really meaningful, are not going to clarify your concerns, for example. And so you can still do it from an, you know just purely data perspective, but it might not be relevant to you. Many other times when we hear what a person wants to accomplish or, or their goals or their concerns, we can say, you know what, these insights can likely, in the hands of your clinician, provide some more nuanced insights. So we're very open, Alexa. Come visit us on our website. Give us a call. All of our contact numbers are on the website. You can get to speak to me. We have a whole battalion of clinicians in-house that we that are trained to deal with these questions. And we'd love to hear from you and your audience. And I will make sure and link all that up in the show notes so you can find out exactly where to get this information. And one last question before we go, what's one last piece of advice you could leave us with? The ownership of your health, the self-ownership of your health. It is remarkable to me, Alexa, that 
as individuals, as consumers, when we're going on a vacation, when we're buying a new car, heck, when we're buying a new microwave or, or, or washing machine, we spend hours upon hours studying the thing. What is the best hotel? What are the best sightseeing at that vacation? What are the best features of that thing that we're going to buy? Yet, it seems that in our current communities and population, we have given over our health to others. Absolutely, there are trained healthcare providers that need to be part of your life. Yes, but as individuals, the thing that I wanted the message is start spending time on learning about your health. What greater commodity, what greater value, what greater thing do you have for you to protect and for you to nurture and for you to improve than your health? So as much as we spend hours and hours, you know, researching other things, start spending some time on your health. Start asking questions. And that is not to replace, not at all, is it to replace your healthcare providers, but it is to become a more informed individual so that you can work with your healthcare providers in a more interactive manner. Yeah. Yeah. This has been so good and such a wealth of knowledge. I am so grateful that you could come on and share more insight um, into where health is going, especially giving people hope in the field of hormones, um, which is so needed. So thank you so much for being here. It's been an honor, Alexa. Thank you again. And thank you for your community for tuning in. I mean, I learned a ton inside today's podcast and it is truly fascinating how our entire hormonal system works so tightly knit with every single other function in the body and what we can learn about our hormonal system that we've never been able to learn before without the world of genomics. So I'm so incredibly thrilled and honored that Dr. Manzer would come on and share this information with you. And I hope that you found it as valuable as I did. Now, if you want to learn more about today's show, make sure you head to the show notes at simperitswellness.com backslash 214 to get all of the information on the show on genetics and hormones and what we can learn about truly getting your body back into balance. Also, don't forget to check out the work of Dr. Manzer and learn more about getting your hormonal panel checked through the dnacompany.com. Yes, that's the dnacompany.com. Just head on over there for all of the information you need to get that done today. But for now, that is it for today's show. Again, I hope you found it valuable and refreshing. And there's lots of other podcasts that I've done and I've had other guests on about the hormonal system. It seems to be one of those systems we keep going back to because it's consistently a problem in the human race. But there are ways to get around it. There are ways to bring your body back into balance without just having to slap Band-Aids on the system. And that's really coming back to your individuality. And something I appreciate so much from his work is that he really brings it back to a personal level and something that we can take that's tangible for ourselves and see the results that we want to see. So with all that being said, don't forget to head to the show notes at simperitswellness.com backslash 214 to get more information on the show and where you can learn more about your hormones. That is it for today. Next week, I'm going to be back on with another guest all month long in the month of May. I have different guests with different topics and it's going to be really phenomenal. After that, I am excited to announce the summer series, which is always a hit. And this summer, it's all on energy. Yes, this summer, we're doing an energy series, which completely changes the game for your health, for your relationships, and even for your lifestyle. I mean, we're hitting every single point on just how to get you more energy, because if you have more energy, everything in your life changes. 
So you're going to want to stay tuned as that podcast series is starting the very first week in May and will go all summer long. It is going to be phenomenal. Okay, but for now, come back next week for another special guest that will be right here on Simple Arts Radio.